0: Welcome
1: Welcome to Uncertain Things, the podcast
0: Every time we remember to say this, an angel gets their wings <laughs> We're in the middle of producing a gazillion shows that we have already recorded And we have a, an insane backlog that is being further <laughs> backlogged Because of our crazy supply chain problems, that is our schedules But, barring some some calamity that will destroy the grid We should have some awesome conversations coming up soon
1: This is true. There's much in the pipeline.
0: Including specifically one that I'm just eager to get out with Matt Taibbi, the journalist that will probably release maybe not next episode, but the one after that. And that connects really neatly with the conversation we just had with Nancy Rommelman about the derangement of media. I mean, fancy that. An Uncertain Things episode about the craziness of media. How novel. But for today, we wanted to take... A break, as we sometimes do, from the political emphasis of our media cultural criticism. Just talk about culture. As with our conversations with Ken Goshen, Adam Neely, and Rob Long, it's critical for us to be able to talk about that critical power of art, music, entertainment, to interface with our social thinking, whether by reflecting our social and cultural anxieties or by obscuring them. Or, you know, also just by making us happy or or sad or or angry, as as we'll get to with our guest. So today's guest is Lindsay Ellis. She's a YouTube media critic, mm. or I should say film critic more specifically. Yes. And film is my jam. And I just love listening to her analysis, even when I find myself disagreeing with her, which is, as you know, even more fun. I, I love the chance to talk to her. Um, but one of the excuses wasn't just our shared um, proclivity proclivity to to analyze, criticize and malign cinema. But she's currently releasing the second volume in her sci fi trilogy, the first of which came out last year. And it's called Axiom's End. It's a riveting, thrilling and funny read. Highly recommended, especially if you like a good alien invasion and some 2000 Bush era Nostalgia, plus the themes that run through the book, deal with social and cultural dreads that are resoundingly pointed. From bioengineering, to transhumanism, to government incompetence, to the inability to reconcile cross-cultural, and in this case, co- cross-species, norms and, and core belief systems.
1: For me, part of what was so interesting about talking with Lindsay was that, you know... Right now we have this kind of toxic media landscape where, you know, the, the wrong kinds of reactions and behaviors to art are incentivized by our algorithms and then tech platforms.
0: To art, to politics, to everything. Yeah. The wrong type of conversations are incentivized <laughs> exactly. broadly.
1: And Lindsay had a lot to say about that, both as now an author, but also as somebody who spent a lot of time creating criticism. And so she has a really interesting way of talking about, like, how do you distinguish good faith criticism from bad faith criticism?
0: And this is something that obviously we talk about a lot on on uncertain things. And one of the things that were were interesting to see through her perspective, I think, some some videos. If you want to do some further exploration, we'll put it in the show notes. The, we can you can watch her video essay about. Mel Brooks and comedy, I think it's one of her, her best videos, just thinking about what, what constitutes, in, in that case, it's more a question of comedy and satire, but she really puts a lot of thought into this, the, the value of, of good, useful critique and parody and satire as opposed to just um, vile vitriol. And also, if you're familiar with her work, you'll you'll have probably heard that she's been through her own rigmarole um, recently and which she discusses in her, a video, I think it's called Mask Off, if you're interested in, in YouTube, world, cancel culture, adjacent drama.
1: There's also a lot of videos on Disney. So if you're a Disney fan, <laughs> that's one of her favorite themes.
0: Actually, yes. And one, another one of her best videos is her Beauty and the Beast essay. It's like an hour-long review of the live action remake highly recommended in general but also specifically in regards to the question of what's the role of good criticism and how that idea has changed over the ages of the internet and you should definitely read her book Axiom and the newly released volume truth of the divine
1: mm-hmm. and we start our conversation right talking about axioms and so we get we start right in the transhumanism of it all
0: oh and uh, Right. And I should apologize, though, that apparently I recorded this episode, appropriate to the theme, while on Mars, as you can hear in the toilet level quality of my recording, interplanetary travel still has a long way to go in terms of content creation. But don't let that stop you from subscribing to Uncertain Things on uncertain.stopstack.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts in order to stay up to date on our gajillion upcoming episodes. If you can, please take a minute to give us a five-star review on Apple podcasts because that, helps us reach new people and will make vanessa very very happy you can't see her but she's nodding with doe eyes big big old doe eyes all right if you really want to support us and help us carve out more time to create more episodes you can drop a few schmickles in our sub stack by joining our full paid subscription we're uncertain pod on the social media when we are on the social media and that's it for the pitch
1: all right and with that
2: You know, I think mostly it was sort of like thinking about like biology and how that would influence the culture. Mm. And uh, while at the same time, you can't make it too weird. And it's really easy to make it weird, you know, (laughs) it's
0: like (laughs) not to bring in um, loaded uh, Silicon Valley terminology, but you're, you're also really interested in transhumanism.
2: Yeah, yeah it's interesting how people really shy away from that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, like, cause I, th- I think it's kind of, I mean, it's like, I wouldn't even say it's inevitable. We're kind of already in it, you know, yeah. where it's like, we have like cybernetic parts and then you have brain geniuses like Elon Musk trying to figure out how to like, you know, create neural networks that interface with like iPhones and it's like hee but it's like <sighs> home slice. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It will happen. And, um, you know, like even, even things like eugenics, like negative eugenics, it's like, we already practice that, you know, like you, people get, uh, you know, chromosomal abnormality tests early in pregnancy, and Mm -hmm. usually will terminate them if that, you know, chromosomal abnormality is uh, either incompatible with life, or they just don't want to deal with, some, you know, whatever special need that abnormality would come with, you know, it's not like eugenics ended, (laughs) like, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, like, you know, because a lot of chromosomal abnormalities, it's just, like, unbelievably cruel to, like, especially things like T13, um, are, like, babies might live five days, Mm. you know, like, imagine, you know, forcing a woman to carry that to term, and, you know, Five days. You know, some women do, and that's their choice, but like to force someone to do that is just unbelievably cruel. And so it's interesting how, like, though this, this reality doesn't really get factored in whenever we talked about it's just like we already do have light transhumanism. We already do practice at least some form of negative eugenics. Like, um, and even arguably, positive eugenics. If you get genetic counseling before you get married, right? You know, and like, which a lot of Ashkenazi people have to do, you know, or like, you know, what if you have Tay Sachs runs on both sides of your family, um, and like, that's another uh, disease that is incompatible with life uh, after a certain age. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just it's uh, it just it's a thing that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I think it's easier to deal with when it's aliens. Like, right. yes, they like clearly eugenicists you know, clearly, you know, post-natural, post-human, cybernetic, but it's alien. So it's not, it's it's easier to let that go because we don't have to see our own fraught history with these things, especially when you like take class into account um, and how whenever we look into our future, you know, knowing like these things, it's just like, it's going to be really class-based and it's going to be really ugly. And we don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah, yeah, really so, so in a
0: way you avoided dealing with that problem by, by not um, having yeah, overtly I think, class.
2: Yeah, I think it's just like, I avoided dealing with the problem by not making it about humans. Right, right. Um, well, I think it's like, it's easier. Casts, oh yeah, yeah. But it's, oh yeah, the, the, the caste system. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, I wasn't, I wasn't about to be like, so like in the Indian caste system, it's like this and this, this, you know, it's just like that. Yeah. It, it was easier just to kind of make it subtext instead of text. Right. You know, because whenever you draw these things back into the human world, it just makes people be like, "Ugh."
0: But it's true that the, the t- buddy taboos are are I, I get they're true to all of humanity broadly, but they're very strong in the U.S., which is which always fascinated me. I think mm-hmm. you you can see that around sexuality, and you certainly about around abortion. Yeah, yeah, and. Do, it, it, <laughs> Just wondering for, as, as a writer, um, we're also going to ask you a little bit about you as a, as a critic, but I'm interested in you as a writer. Do you feel like, like, I don't know, titillated or excited about pressing these taboos? Or are they something that they're just you know, part of your broad curiosity that you want to explore, but you don't necessarily want to like, feel, make people feel uncomfortable?
2: I'm not worried about making people feel uncomfortable. I'm worried about bad faith you know, people, people taking this and, you know, you say making a big movement out of it, like, oh, you're clearly a eugenicist well, or something mm. like that by stating the true thing, which is that we do practice some form of negative eugenics here in the United States. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's weird that we don't, <laughs> you know, admit that. Uh, but um, it, it, it's just, it's more, it's kind of hard to write around, like, how do you, uh, um, you know, try to anticipate these sort of like, you know, if you just like, if you want to criticize me for a thing that's there, that's one thing. But if you want to like take something out of context and, you know, turn it into this big, like, uh, um, uh, you know, just thing out of nothing, then it's just like, it. it's just easier to like not use certain words or, mm-hmm. uh, but on the other hand, people still do that. Like, right. uh, no matter what I words lot- you use. I have a bunch of people that like um, are very like, they, they still like to hassle me about the main relationship in Axiom's End because mm. the alien does some pretty unscrupulous things <laughs> throughout the narrative, but especially early in the narrative. And uh, and it's just sort of like, oh, you you made a narrative where your you know kidnapper falls in love with her abuser. And it's just like, man, you must have really hated Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, but it's just, and, and like stuff like that is frustrating because it like doesn't feel like good faith to me because it's, okay, well, if this is, this is a bridge too far, what is okay? You know, because I didn't want to frame it like it was 100%
1: every
2: Dory. Obviously, that's why there's a series. gets a lot more, I get it kind of complicated and, you know, their relationship is extremely difficult in the second book.
0: It's so crazy. I, I, I di- di- didn't know that you actually were getting criticism about that particular angle. And for just yeah. context, <laughs> out, without without spoiling too much, I, one of the first interactions between the, the human protagonist, Korra, and the alien uh, ampersand is essentially mind control. Yeah. Thoroughly enough for it to not be uh, a big spoiler. And it is from this point on that the relationship develops
2: yeah it's like that's that's how they meet is right. mind
0: micro obviously of the alien the alien yeah. of the human and do you deal with it like you straight up like she the, the you know the word consent is literally in the book yeah. discussing a that lot. and, and struggle, <laughs> a lot and like struggling with this question and trying to see to what extent they can get past that and also to me again most interestingly of all to what extent their understanding of words like consent or of, of the idea of a relationship even corresponds being yeah. completely two different species
2: yeah because he's not sorry about that at mm. any point in the narrative like even at the end where he's like you know i you know i pet 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 i like you now like he's never apologetic for like not only what he did to her but he did it to like a bunch of people just as like experiments um and he's like what i needed to do it
0: Right. right. It it doesn't have the beast moment of I want to do something nice for her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I did what I had to do, man. I'm sorry, not sorry. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like that's another one of those sort of like irreconcilable differences where it's just like, what do you do if someone does something pretty terrible and never really understands why it's terrible? Mm -hmm. You can either cut them out of your life or you just kind of like, well, (laughs) move on. And at least at the end of the first book, that's kind of what they do. Um. Although you know, obviously, that's not the end of it. Uh, right. But yes, yeah, so, like writing around stuff like that is frustrating. Right. I also had I had a few people that like didn't like. There's a fairly major character who's Jewish and also kind of a jerk.
0: Oh, I was going to say that you're clearly <laughs> Semitic. That your yeah. major character. <laughs> I've
2: heard that a few times, and I am like, sort of like he's like his character is only like more important going on, and like he's. It just bothers me how it's like you're not allowed to have like character flaws right. that you grow from. You know, right.
0: you start No, it's and it's also so frustrating. Like I'm I I'm am, I am, as my name may suggest Jewish. I think it could be a revelation to my audience. <laughs> uh, I remember in during the book, I was like, I was anticipating that comment uh-huh. just so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Also, also Jews are allowed to be <laughs> villains without like yes. the subtext being you know what? Let's, let's start preparing for the second Holocaust. Yeah. Made up Jewish, it's okay. It's okay. I guess
2: the, the thing is like, if, if nothing bad happens to, or if, if, if this is like kind of hashtag problematic, then the alternative is like, everybody has to be mm. white. And, you know, cause um, you're not
0: allowed to write on anybody who's not. Yeah. It's just yet. like,
2: if, if you kill a, you know, a minority or a queer character or if a minority or queer character is like kind of an asshole. Uh, it, it's just, you know, cause I did think about that. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't want to have to like rewrite it to to make it so that like nothing bad happens or they, you know, don't, or, or they don't do anything bad. Cause like that, that, the ironic thing about that character is he's probably one of my favorite characters. He's like, he's a point of view character in the third book. Um, and it's, it's fun being able to like, you know, have, have a growth, but in order to have character growth, you kind of need to start from a point that merits growing, right. you know?
1: Right. Cause the alternative is only white characters or to have incredibly flat one dimensional right. minority yeah. characters that like you're saying that don't grow or that just buy into some sort of kind of narrative of the, like whatever it might be that people want, like they're going to be great. Yeah. And that's, that's all that we, we, we want out of our art. Yeah. It's, it's interesting for, for me to, to watch someone go from being a critic to a creator. And I'm sure that you were a creator like m- mm-hmm. while you were critiquing, but you were more well-known for your criticism. And now you're kind of more fully um, kind of putting yourself out there as an author for, first and foremost. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess it, for me, it's really interesting because when now that you were, you were always in your criticism, you were always kind of distinguishing between kind of good faith criticism and bad faith criticism. And and d- distinguishing between like when it's when it's an actual valid argument versus when it's just kind of like lazy or off yeah. the cuff. Um, I'm curious now that you're receiving criticism, has that distinction become even more kind of imprinted upon you now that you're receiving the criticism for your art, or has it sh- has your distinction shifted in any way or hmm. solidified or a little because I feel like I definitely get I. I I, I
2: definitely get more than someone else in my shoes would get because I think with a lot of people, there is definitely this sort of urge to be like, aha, shoes on the other foot. Mm-hmm. And um, so, because definitely, like I've seen people be really frustrated, like bookseller, there's one bookseller that was like on Twitter talking about like, there is like such mixed reviews to this book, but there's zero consistency with what the problem actually is, you know? So it'll be like, some people think the protagonist is too stupid some people think she's too like uh way too adept way too way too (laughs) smart you know it'll be like um or you know there there had just been like such a wide array of what the problem was and that's the weird thing is like there's some criticism that I like agreed with I'm not gonna say what it was but there was a lot of people who didn't like it and for reasons that I'm like yeah yeah no you're right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but at the same time like there were you know I feel I feel like there was definitely this urge to kind of like put me in my place because mm. there was just such you know there wasn't really consistency with what the problem actually was and um that that I felt was a little uh, telling because it was like you know it's just like if if there isn't really any you know consistent through line with what the problem is then <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like this kind of seems like maybe people are taking it up just, you know, for the joy of, you know, saying that I can dish it out, but I can't take it. Um,
1: Do you have like the Lindsay Ellis guide for identifying bad faith criticism? Like if the person does X, Y, Z, therefore you can tell they didn't actually grapple with I feel with like the, art. The, the number one thing is if they
0: are, The through line doesn't exist.
1: The through line is does it feel
2: like they're going to get a lot of social media attention? Mm. <laughs> that is kind of the first and foremost. I mean, you laugh, but that, that is sort of like kind of the first and foremost, like, uh, reason why people do this in the first place. Like, why would it be, why bother wasting energy unless you think you're going to get something out of it? And now it's, you know, like upvotes and likes mm. and reach and, engagement. And like, even if that is negative engagement, like you see this on Goodreads all the time, or if they are like, like, I don't, I, ha- I haven't looked at it, but I know there are some like really highly rated reviews that are so highly rated or highly rated negative reviews that are like really bumped up by their algorithm because there's a lot of fighting in the comments. Mm. And so like, That's
0: fun. That that's <laughs> sort
2: fun. of, <laughs> there's, there's, there is incentive to that sort of thing. Even if that incentive is getting in like fights on Twitter, so, um, you know, is it is it fashionable? Are you like, you know, <laughs> just trying to be contrarian that that sort of like tends to be the big incentive for mm-hmm. bad faith.
0: And what's heartbreaking to me about this so much so that I just poured myself another glass of whiskey is that <laughs> the I mean, act- actually, as somebody who is in the, the criticism journalism world, it's just so, so tragic because there is which is going back to your, you know, your YouTube uh, career. There, good criticism is so valuable. Being able to to actually look at, at other people's work and think about it meaningfully, criticize the thing that's shitty, it's good. It increases our ability to actually enjoy the art and, and, and then encourage better art from the next crop of creators like yourself, that I'm sure that you have incorporated some. But those incentives that lead people to just be vicious, it's just decreasing all the good things about you know, artistic discourse. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was just a, an insertion. There was, there was no question there.
2: Again, to get back to this thing about engagement is the reality is uh, negative reviews do tend to get attraction. You know, mm-hmm. like, thing is terrible. This is why, um, like, there, there is definitely real incentive. Like, if you look at my channel, like, the mean stuff does way better numbers than um, anything that's positive. Um, and that's just, you know, because there there is like some catharsis to taking down, you know, a piece of art. It feels like punching up. And, you know, there are things like Game of Thrones where like, of course, that's going to be really popular because it, you know, was popularly regarded badly and people feel robbed. So <laughs> content mm-hmm. like that is going to do well. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of, it, it's easy to see where, entire channels will spring up that are like less about criticism so much as like just monetizing negativity you know mm. Sins being the most obvious where it's like you know it they originally kind of marketed themselves as like speaking truth to power and it's like come on you know <laughs> <laughs> come on really and I you know I, as, as time has gone on I think people kind of saw, saw see through that more mm. um and you know they're they kind of revised course and it was like, no, it's just jokes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's just there there is a lot of incentive to be negative. And so people will find reasons to be negative, even if it's not super, super
0: valid. You did a great job in your Game of Thrones review that you've just brought up, making sure to distinguish between the valid criticism and any desire to create hate mobs against either the actors or the people actually involved in the process, which sometimes gets lost mm-hmm. because people feel so strongly about it.
2: Yeah, and honestly, I didn't see that. And I followed all of the hate mobs because I feel all of the ire was at the showrunners. Hmm. It still is, you know, and rightly so, in my opinion, because they, like, were rushing it so they could get on to, like, their Netflix deal in Star Wars, and now they have neither. <laughs> sometimes justice is real. <laughs>
0: But I guess I guess more with the uh, you reference, I think in that video, like the the, the mobs that Star Wars created to mm-hmm. towards some of the actors, and that's yeah, like, oh yeah, that, it's just it's just it's just a shame. It's like you, it's like the the energy sometimes is good. It's nice to see some so such engagement with the work, but mm. come on. And anyway. I mean,
1: Adam, yesterday when you were bringing up the Game of Thrones video, and you and I were talking about it, I think one of the questions you wanted to ask Lindsay, and I guess I'm going to ask it right now, was just, I mean, what <laughs> what do what do artists owe their audiences? Mm. Do they owe them what? something? Like, do they, do, should they be? Well, I don't think there's such thing as
2: owe. Mm.
1: Um,
2: like, owe implies a debt. Mm-hmm. However, I think like they, they, you know, sh- shouldn't be too surprised if they, you know, become so detached from their own audience and they just have such a big swing that there would be such a backlash um I, I you know I don't think anyone is owed anything where media is concerned. However, I think that the backlash to Game of Thrones was absolutely deserved because it was like so obvious that they just weren't putting the care and attention it, in those two seasons that they had in earlier seasons, and you know kind of had such little respect for their audience that they didn't think anyone would notice, and so of course people kind of felt insulted and. Um, you know it like just like idiots for wasting so much time in it, like I certainly did. You know, where it's just it is amazing how it's like I used to rewatch the earlier seasons all the time, and I have not touched it since we finished those videos mm. two years ago, you know. And so, uh, I, I guess that's the weird thing about like fan backlash and um, like when is it valid? When isn't it? I don't think there's like a line, um, right. but I do think that, uh, you know there there's also this really troubling trend of studios just kowtowing to whatever fans want um whenever there are these sort of like backlashes that are ultimately like a really small minority but a very loud minority like ghosters where like that backlash was so intense that the studio was like cool we're gonna try again we're gonna retcon the existence of that entire movie and we're going to make something that will appease the type of person that created that backlash in the first place you know basically just uh so it's just like when is it valid where i would say like the you know game of fashion game of thrones backlash was valid where the ghostbusters one was not i don't know um you know i I, I, obviously that feels correct to me (laughs) uh but you know I guess the Ghostbusters fans felt insulted in the right. same way that like Game of Thrones fans did. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but I do think it's troubling how like, how studios are like trying so hard to like, you know, conform to like, like A, you know, avoid expectations, but be conform to audience expectations and, you know, give the most toxic forms of, or, you know, toxic side of their fandom what they want. Like that last Star Wars movie. Ugh brutal The movie
1: was so bad <laughs> right basically what you're saying is when you go either way if you completely ignore it it's probably going to be a catastrophe but if you completely give into it it's probably also going to be i a don't catastrophe. i don't
0: even th- i don't think i yeah. uh, personally i don't even see it as necessarily pandering to your audience so much as creating fan service for the stereotype of the fans that you have in your mind rather than actually trying to understand what it is yeah, that appreciate like, about the that, work itself
2: that last Star Wars movie pleased nobody like nobody liked it except for the people who like w- went in like I'm gonna like it no matter what <laughs> um you know and like it was clearly made for people who were mad at the last Jedi <laughs> and like were those people happy I, I think for the most part probably not because it was just such a clumsy movie that built not at all on what came before it and Like it just, it felt very rushed. And then like with the the, like haphazard way Carrie Fisher was jammed in, it was just a mess. (laughs) Mm. So it's just like in this attempt to please everybody, they please nobody. Right. Um, We have Game of Thrones is like kind of on the other end of the spectrum where they're like, yeah, we're going to take risks just like the Sopranos and end up pissing everybody off. Uh, But again, I think that just kind of goes back not so much to the fact that they took risks, but the fact that like they just lost respect for the intelligence of their audience. Mm. Like. Any risk is a good risk. Yeah. It's like, no, not all risks are
1: good.
0: Yeah. This is not the I'm same right.
1: as killing off Ned Stark in season one. It's not the same <laughs> thing. So we asked, so we interviewed a, um, Rob Long, who was the screenwriter for, um, cheers, cheers. and has done a lot of cool, interesting stuff in, uh, Hollywood. He has a podcast called Mar- Martini shot where he kind of talks about all things, Hollywood and little bite-sized bits. Um, and we asked him cause you know, Adam, especially because he's like a, he is a film nerd. I'm a, I'm an amateur. Um, but we asked we asked him like what the hell is going on with Hollywood? Like how do you di- diagnose why so much that's produced feels kind of flat and soulless and clearly made, you know, for a buck or two or so? Like where what what's ha- where's the heart of Hollywood gone basically? And he said he said um the problem is there's no truth anymore. Nobody wants to write the truth. I'll tell you what the problem is. Problem is there's less money and less studios
2: there are like two studios now and they have a monopoly and of course most of it's disney disney controls the vast majority of the market and they make incredibly safe uh product for their audience uh and yeah that's pretty much it
0: but do you but when you agree that there's less truth that there are less real subjects that the the medium is willing to engage with
2: what than ghostbusters like less true than what like what are we comparing it to like yeah you know what's true twister that's some (laughs) true shit right there bring me back to the 90s man when every like water world woo, yeah no come on what are we comparing this to You,
0: you do not buy into that
2: no i don't buy into that i think it's like the thing right now is just there's there's like there's people are moving desperately moving to television, like, you know, television is where all the interesting new ideas are being made. Television's where all the money is, um, you know, television is flush with cash, especially now after COVID, there's just no money in film anymore. Um, especially cause like a lot of films are just being relay- released straight to streaming. So um, like, you know, that's, but I, I really like, I really enjoy like Succession. I think HBO does really good dramas, like, you know, Yeah, uh, I also think they do really good documentary, Uh, Amazon, like, uh, what's it? The Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett thing (laughs) that came out last year. Good (laughs) Omens. Yeah, Good Omens. Like, yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff being made. I just, none of it resonates with me right now, just because Mm. I'm, uh, you know, my brain is just so wired to turning things into content. I just can't, Mm. like, engage with things emotionally anymore.
0: Wow. So I, I remember when we talked with um, Adam Neely about being able to do music after like actually becoming a, a music educator and, and to what extent did that diminish his ability to appreciate music? So you really feel that you're, the, the content machine in your brain has is, is, is lowered your ability to just enjoy screen work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why I've like kind of gone all in on like theater. Like I just don't enjoy movies and television anymore. I'm just sick of it.
0: When did you realize that?
2: Uh, about a year ago.
0: Was there a specific show that you were watching and you're like, I think well, I should- more that I just
2: avoid. I just was mm. viscerally avoiding things. And if I did watch something, it was just so I would be a part of the discourse and, mm. you know, uh, like, um, you know, like WandaVision. I didn't particularly care about that, but I watched it and it was fine. Um, Cause like none of the Disney plus stuff does anything for me. Um, I don't think it's bad I think it's you know again like I think most of what's going on on Disney plus is better superhero stuff than anything that like came out in the 90s or 2000s I just you know burnt out on the MCU I'm just over it and Mm. it's kind of wild to me that that people are still like yeah MCU I'm like my god it's been 10 years nonstop. right it never ends um Uh, you know, like same with Falcon. I liked Loki. I think I, Loki, I genuinely like felt a feeling until I thought the the last episode was kind of disappointing. Um, but yeah, I, I, that almost made me an emotion.
0: (laughs) Is that, is that something that you resent about your? Yeah.
2: Yep. (laughs) Let's just say it won't be long for this world Mm. here.
1: We are wrapping up an epoch. I had a friend who became like an Instagram influencer because he made d- took amazing photos. And at a certain point, he just completely stopped like cold turkey because it was like it was just exhausting. It takes it. You no longer are doing the art for the art. You're doing it for. Yeah, you're doing it for money. You're doing yeah. it for
2: engagement. And especially on YouTube, like if your engagement drops, it shames you. It mm. makes you. It tells you, you know, like this is a problem you need to do better you need to change title you need to change thumbnail Mm. like you know blames you for the numbers doing poorly and it's just like it's a recipe for misery right
1: um is that oh sorry is that different from when you started like has it has it oh
2: absolutely yeah like the you know the algorithm has just become more and more dominant not just on youtube but across all platforms and i just feel like any no matter how much they try to moderate it any platform that is primarily algorithm driven is going to into trash mm-hmm. sooner or later usually sooner <laughs> and it's just going to create a, a misery machine that's impossible to keep up with especially for small creators who are just like one person and you know, you, you know it's just like if it's your twitter account or it's your youtube account is telling you people are less interested in you people are not clicking that's what that's how it's framed people are clicking on this video less here's what we suggest to to fix that it's a recipe for misery, and mm. everyone I know is burnt out and miserable. But I mean, so there's you... there's
0: no joy in in the YouTube world.
2: Um, no, I can't <laughs> think. Uh, yeah, I, I like I, everyone I know is like at least my personal friends, like every burnt out. Everybody's just stressing out, trying to think of how to stay relevant, right. trying to think of how to keep the numbers up. That's why a lot of people only release like two or three videos a year now where it'll be like <laughs> going all in on one thing. And if that one thing does poorly, then you're just sunk. Yeah,
1: this is the thing that makes me worried about it, right? Because if people are like, okay, we'll go back to books, but then if there's no like ec- model, economic model for it, then where does that leave right. creators? And it's like, how do
2: you advertise it? You have
1: to use yeah. social media. And yeah. that is again,
2: fucking algorithm generated.
1: Yeah. Um, you
2: know, it's, I I, I guess we'll see. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, so far it's been okay for me. Um, but again, I've had like this large platform that I could use. Right. So I won't have that at least, you know, no more than any other author will. So.
1: Right. I'll just say.
0: Thank you for listening to uncertain things. We'll be back next week or actually a week after that with more melancholic ruminations full of despair about the way we communicate. Follow us on uncertain.stopset.com and give us a five-star review on Apple podcasts. Till next time. Stay sane.